those listening in need of an introduction to my next guest on the lockdown series, I'm speaking to Salvatore Barbones, an American sociologist, associate professor at the University of Sydney, and an expert on Sino-US relations. He's also the author of The New Authoritarianism, Trump, Populism, and the Tyranny of Experts, a book which caught my attention again recently when it first started becoming clear how much of the world is finding itself forced to accept authoritarian decisions from governments, something few people would ever have thought possible, save in the event of a third world war. Yet here we are. Well, Jack, a lot of people are calling this a third world war, including our own prime minister here, Scott Morrison, who's declared war on coronavirus. Of course, Donald Trump, uh, Emmanuel Macron, uh, the leaders of countries all around the world have used this term war against coronavirus, and they're treating it that way in enforcing a kind of blanket rule over people's behaviors that uh, you know, we haven't seen short of war, or in some cases, we haven't even seen in wartime. How are you finding this plays out on a day-to-day basis? There are a list of 12 specific reasons that you're allowed to go out, but they are pretty broad. So I do go out every day for a walk. Exercise is allowed. The funny thing is you're allowed to exercise outdoors, but don't go sit and read on a park bench because reading outdoors (laughs) is not allowed. And if you're sitting on a park bench, police come by and tell you to move along and you can get it on the spot fine for sitting on a park bench. We're here talking about experts telling us to stay home in the face of a public health crisis. But, you know, that really is just the icing on the cake. If you think about it, experts in the form of central bankers have been determining our entire economic lives for the last 30 years, deciding when interest rates will go up and down and when we will have low and high unemployment. Uh, We have had experts in education taking what used to be local curricula determined by schools and determined by teachers and parents instead being converted into national curricula, in some cases, global curricula under OECD pressure, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the Rich Countries Club, has been heavily engaged in trying to standardize education across countries. Uh, you know, drugs are approved or not approved uh, you know, in country after country, but on the advice of a single global authority like uh, the United States FDA, trade policy, you know, we can go to area after area of public life and see governance by global consensus. If a group of people around the world, a group of leading intellectuals who write about, think about, study, uh, serve in these kinds of institutions, if we all agree on a certain point of view, then that point of view becomes a default approach, not just in one country or another country, but globally. Perhaps we could start with me asking how the pandemic has given the tyranny of experts room to expand. Well, I want to backtrack a minute and point out that uh, I'm not saying that rule by experts is necessarily bad. I am saying that rule by experts is necessarily undemocratic. Now, it might be possible that unelected bureaucrats make better decisions than elected leaders. And many people make that argument. Uh, But if you accept that, then, of course, you lose something. You lose accountability. You lose legitimacy. uh, You lose a voice. We all want to have a voice in the way we are governed. The more you take decision-making out of the hands of elected leaders and put it in the hands of unelected bureaucrats, the more you isolate actual policymaking from democracy. Now, something I find troubling is that most of my colleagues in the social sciences think that's a good thing. Do you find yourself disagreeing with your colleagues on this? 
Oh, yes. It's received wisdom that the more you can insulate policymaking from the vagaries of democratic politics, the better. You know, we had a lot of trouble even getting the book published because we need peer review to have an academic publication. And peers simply wouldn't review the book because they felt it was beyond the pale to suggest that decision making should not be in the hands of an expert class. Speaking of experts, you're quite an expert yourself, Australia's <laughs> very own globalization expert. How did you, an American, come to be adopted by another country to, as it were, own this topic? Well, I came to Australia for the weather. Uh, I used to teach at the University of Pittsburgh in the United States and offered a chance to uh, jump from Pittsburgh winters to Australian summers. I took it. Uh, Australian academia tends to be, uh, you know, a bit inward looking. Uh, you know, most Australian academics tend to focus specifically on Australia. And there are very few people on this continent, in this country, who really try to take a global perspective. And, you know, in, in the UK or in the United States, you will have experts on everything. You know, in, in London, Oxford, Cambridge, you would have experts on every topic and every place in the world, everything under the sun. Partly that's a legacy of empire, partly that's a legacy or, or a, a real manifestation of Britain's continuing place in the world. But in other countries, you know, like Australia, um, most academics tend to focus locally. And as a result, there's there are very few people here who are taking that kind of global perspective on their work. Now, that's something that, you know, even as an American in America, I was always keen to do not to just be caught looking at the United States, but always to take a comparative perspective to things. Even more so, you know, since I've lived outside the United States and out of that American bubble, seeing the American bubble from the outside instead of trying to pierce through it from the inside, I think gives a scholar a, you know, a, a better, a better perspective on seeing the world as a whole. I mean, just look at Australia on a map. If you want to stand somewhere and see the rest of the world, <laughs> you know, Australia is maybe a good place to do it from. May I ask what about the international response to the coronavirus could in fact threaten national populism? So first, first, let's start with what is the international order? Everyone's talking today about the World Health Organization. Its director general is Tedros Adhanom. Tedros Adhanom is a, an Ethiopian doctor who, I don't mean to be offensive, but certainly does not have the kinds of credentials of, say, professor of medicine at the Johns Hopkins University. Instead, he was a political choice. Ethiopia is very closely aligned with China. It's kind of China's bridgehead in Africa. And China along with the African nations, and of course, African nations would make up a large percentage of the United Nations, used its influence and the African bloc to elect Adhanom as the director general of the World Health Organization. Adhanom has, in return, thoroughly praised, I'm uh, not just supported, the Chinese approach to the coronavirus, and of course, insisted that it be called COVID-19 instead of what everyone was calling it in January, the Wuhan coronavirus. Okay? So, what we call this international order sounds almost noble, right? The world coming together to solve the problems of the world in a cooperative way. In reality, it's a totalitarian regime getting its underqualified political appointee headed to global public health. Now, is national populism in some way undermining global responses? Well, no, I think if anything, Voters, ordinary people in countries around the world have been demanding better responses from their government. I mean, let's not forget that that Imperial College 
designed response in the UK uh, only <laughs> lasted a few weeks in the face of reality, right? The UK's plan was herd immunity. Uh, and you know, people simply weren't going to stand for it. Uh, and I think people were right not to stand for it. Um, uh, you know, it, it, so it's not clear to me at all that this crisis has showed how we really need experts for guidance. Um, if anything, this crisis has showed how corrupt and self-serving the global class is. One way it strikes me that this pandemic has exposed a faulty edge to national populism is that it's shown what can happen when exceptionalist thinking is applied to problems that make no exceptions. We saw what this did in the UK, which had created a plan for what to do in the event of a pandemic more than a decade before the COVID-19 outbreak, yet was caught out when this proved insufficient to accommodate the particular nature and behaviour of the virus. Subsequently, we banked on mitigation in this country rather than suppression tactics because government was already invested in this idea that Britain's future lay in doing things differently to the rest of Europe. Let me tell you a little about the Australian situation. The cruise ship industry, which was closed down in East Asia, you may remember the Diamond Princess stuck in Yokohama. You know, all those reports of coronavirus in, in March would list every country of the world and plus the Diamond Princess as a you know, non-country that was one of the leading hotspots of coronavirus. All across Asia, they refused to let cruise ships dock. And so where did the cruise ships go? They came to Australia because Australia let the cruise industry operate in March. Now, I don't mean let the passengers unload. I mean letting the cruise industry continue to operate in March because there was very strong political pressure not to close down the cruise industry or the airline industry because they didn't want to lose money. Any reasonable person would have said, March is not the time to take a cruise. Yet, not only did the government allow this to continue to operate, but then the biggest source of infection in Sydney has been the sister ship of that diamond princess, the Ruby Princess, which docked here in Sydney. It was rated low risk by the local health authorities and passengers all unloaded into the community. Now we have 800 cases of coronavirus derived from the Ruby Princess. Again, why was this ship? I mean, in March, in late March, we still had cruise ships running. Why? Because the political influence of the cruise industry can help shape expert opinion. Now, I wasn't privy to those discussions. I don't know who was leaned on and why they made the decisions they did. I just know that if you put a jury of ordinary Australians in charge of health policy on March 15th of this year, and you ask them, should cruise lines still be operating? Should people be flying in from Italy with no quarantine? They would have said, no, that's crazy. Please protect us. Yet the experts rated these as low risk and took no action. And as a result, Australia has an unnecessary epidemic. When it comes to your proposal that experts be heard but not in charge, how do you think then the chain of command should flow? How should that play out? Well, everyone has an opinion, and there are experts in different fields who have different opinions. You should listen widely. Oh, look, I'm, I'm a big fan of of the British Constitution, or I should say the English Constitution, and its historical evolution. I think two of the biggest mistakes the United Kingdom made in the 21st century was creating a, an independent central bank and creating an independent Supreme Court. Uh, at the turn of the millennium, Britain had neither. It was an outlier among countries, and those institutions were under political control, uh, which meant, yes, they could be politically manipulated, 
but it also meant that political authorities could be held responsible if things went bad. Now, you know, things can go as bad as can be, and the central bank and the uh, Supreme Court are insulated from anything that might happen. And of course, we saw that with the whole Brexit debacle. I don't want to try to make this a podcast on Brexit. Well, I do want to point out that, you know, Brexit showed how these, how having institutions that are not politically accountable paralyzes the country. And that's what I want to see is the, in democracy, democracy thrives on the ability to say, to look at people and say, you're fired. And we, you know, we all know that we Americans all know that we can fire Donald Trump if he doesn't perform. Uh, and that's the crucial thing, is that he is making decisions on our behalf, not because he's so smart. He believes he is. <laughs> none, of us, none of us agree with him. Uh, he's making decisions not because he's so smart, not because he's such an expert on these issues, but because if he makes wrong decisions, we're going to replace him. Or if he makes decisions that are simply that we're not happy with, we're going to replace him. And to me, that's what democracy is all about, you know. Yeah, let the experts have their opinions. I'm an expert. I have my opinion. People listen or they don't listen. Uh, ultimately, it's the democratic process that has to solve problems. And if you don't believe that, you're not a Democrat. It's that simple. Uh, you know, I, I, I get very troubled when I have colleagues who demonize what they call majoritarian democracy, as if that's no democracy at all. You know, majoritarian democracy is some kind of perversion of democracy on the road to fascism in some way. And I point out to them, well, the whole point of democracy is that majority opinion rules. And if you can't accept that, you might have a perfectly respectable point of view, but it's not a democratic point of view. You write in your book about the speech that Xi Jinping gave at the annual gathering at Davos, in which he said that any attempt to cut off the flow of capital, technologies, industries and people between countries is simply not possible. Now, if the rise of populism in the West has given us any sense at all of the extent to which globalization has delivered, at best, asymmetric benefits, both within developed countries and in the sense of having mostly enriched China, COVID-19 appears to have planted a much deeper seed of doubt about whether the rules-based international order is in fact sustainable. Well, I'm, I'm in a bit of a bind here because while I am a staunch critic of globalism, I'm actually quite a fan of globalization. And let me distinguish between those two. I don't want to global global governance. I don't want to be ruled by the United Nations. I don't want Tedros Adhanom in charge of my public health. I want to see elected officials who are responsible to and can be dismissed by their constituents, I want to see them making policy on my behalf. That said, globalization, that is the process of you know, increasing movement of people and goods across borders, I think that's been basically good for the world. And I think it's been uh, you know, fantastic economically, not just for the world as a whole, but even for people in countries where populists often want to criticize globalization. I'll give an example from the United States. The problem in the United States in the last 40 years, we've had no increase in median incomes for 40 years, actually going on 50 years since 1972 in the United States. Uh, median incomes have been stagnant. That's not because of globalization. It's because of policies that have been 
forced on the United States by a consensus of experts. Policies like deunionization, policies like not increasing the minimum wage, policies like not providing universal health care. I mean, there's no reason why the United States can't trade with China, but also have unions, have decent health care, have low taxes on the poor and high taxes on the rich. None of that contradicts globalization. It does contradict globalism. It does contradict this global consensus on policy. Neoliberalism. Well, look, look at the UK. Would you have had, uh, when, when the UK opted for free movement of people within the European Union and, and bought into that as at the first moment, letting, uh, Romanian, Bulgarian, uh, you know, newly acceding countries, people from newly acceding countries move to the UK. Would they have flooded the UK if minimum wages in the UK had already existed at that point and UK had a high minimum wage? Would employers have had any incentive to go recruit in Romania if the UK had a high minimum wage? The reason they recruited in Romania is that at the time, the UK had no minimum wage. And so why pay a British person a living wage when you could pay a Romanian what a Romanian considered a living wage? You know, the, the, the key flaw in policy was not the free movement. The key flaw in policy was the lack of a minimum wage. Is it wise for Western countries as a result of this pandemic to question going forward their relationship and their dependence on trade with China? Say the British government decides to pull its deal with Huawei. In general, I recommend that countries not integrate Huawei technology into their 5G networks. I think it's, it's a bit irresponsible, kind of like Australia leasing the port of Darwin to the Chinese government-owned port operator. It probably won't ever be a problem, but it's probably not a good idea. That said, do I think it would be catastrophic? Do I think anything bad will actually happen? No, it's probably fine, right? I, I, I mean, so I don't want to be alarmist about it. I just want to be sensible about it. Uh, whether or not the UK adopts Huawei technology will make very little difference to the broad contours of the 21st century or Britain's place in it. Uh, Britain will save a little money if it adopts Huawei technology. But if you take the bigger picture, the reason China is doomed to fail is that every country is having a debate. Should we accept Huawei technology? Whether they decide yes or no, they're having a debate. No one has that debate other than Russia, Iran, and China over should we allow Google in? Should we allow Facebook in? You know, should we allow Qualcomm chips in our 5G networks? No one's having these debates, right? So the, the cards are stacked against China. China may win a contract for Huawei here or there, but they have to fight for it at every step. And very often they have to pay for it in two ways, either in some developing countries by bribing officials to use Chinese uh, equipment or in more developed countries by offering sweetheart deals, effectively subsidizing their equipment. Uh, you know, the reason American power is so stable is that when it's time to pay the piper, the piper pays the United States. And let's not mince words about it. An American financial crisis caused by poor American governance and bad regulation in the United States led to a global financial crisis, which immediately drove up the value of the U.S. dollar <laughs> as everybody sought to move their money into dollars. Now, can you imagine? A financial crisis in China and everybody rushing to buy yuan, it's inconceivable. If there's, if there's a crisis in China, everyone's going to get their money out. 
you know, every country that experiences a crisis other than the United States has money pulled out. But the United States is so systemically important, for good or for bad. I mean, look, if I were Chinese and talking about this, I would be decrying this. I would be warning the world, look how awful it is that you subsidize American imperialism. Well, those complaints have a kernel of truth in them. Right? I mean, the fact that the world turns to the U.S. dollar in crisis, you know, well, yes, that does subsidize American imperialism. Where, when the lockdown is lifted or when the restrictions, as I should say, in Australia have lifted, will you be going to grab your first taste of freedom? Well, in fact, I will pick up where I left off. My very last lunch, I have a Friday standing lunch. Anyone listening wants to join me every Friday, 1 p.m. at Bacanza in Surrey Hills. They have two locations. I, I go to the Surrey Hills location here in Sydney. Fantastic, uh, you know, full Perfect quality Neapolitan pizza if you want a simple margarita like I do. Uh, and uh, my last time there was on a Friday. I'm not going to give you the date. I can't remember it off the top of my head. On the Friday before the restrictions came in. And the manager had just come back to work after some time away. And, oh, it's great to see you again. And I said, well, you know, it's sad that I'm going to see you today, but I probably won't see you again for a while. And he thought... No, why? I mean, we're open. It's no problem. I said, we're not going to be open for long. <laughs> and uh, he, he kind of didn't get what I was saying. And I, I, you know, in Australia, it's not required to tip. I left a $10. <laughs> I left a $10 tip because I knew, you know, $10 won't go very far. But, well, it's something. And uh, as soon as things are back open, back to Vacanza and my margarita pizza. Please come join me at 1 p.m. Fridays at Vacanza. Listen, uh, Salvatore, thank you so much for your time. I guess have a good night. Good night. Good night. Yeah. All right. Speak soon. Take care. Bye-bye.